Our scripture comes from the book of Romans, chapter 10. I'll be reading verses 5 through 15. Moses writes about the righteousness that comes from the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from the law, from faith, talks like this. Don't say in your heart, who will go to heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will go down to the region below? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message of faith we preach. Because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and in your heart you have faith that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Trusting with the heart leads to righteousness, and confessing with the mouth leads to salvation. The scripture says all who have faith in him won't be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord is Lord of all who gives richly to all who call on him. All who call on the name's Lord's name will be saved. So how can they call on someone they do not have faith in? And how can they have faith in one they have not heard of? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we've come a long way from Romans 1. Just as a brief sort of way of um, rehashing what is impossible to rehash even in a full sermon, we'll talk a little bit about what we have come to this far. So basically, Paul has, has in Romans presented us a problem. Humanity is sinful. Uh, we are steeped in sin. We, we cannot meet God's righteousness. And though we have tried over and over and over and over again, we cannot hope to live on our own power, in our own means, the life that God has created us and called us to live. We cannot do this on our own. I'm sorry. Get this working. I don't do anything from day to day, and somehow it changes. Is that better? Okay, hopefully it'll stay on. Okay, back on the horse. All right, so we have a problem. We are steeped in sin. And we cannot figure how to get out of sin. And, and even when we try and even when we desire to not sin, uh, Paul talks about that, that turmoil that we have. Like we do what we do not want to do. And the things that we want to do, we have an inability to do. And, and we find ourselves crying out to God, right? Who will free me from this body of death? Who will free us from this, this situation that we are in, this, this slavery to sin? And, and Paul then exclaims, right? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives us an answer that, that, that for us, the, the, the answer lies not within ourselves, not within trying harder, not within doing better, but our, our, our answer to the, the sin problem that is in us is Christ Jesus and no other. The crucified and risen Messiah. That is our hope. That is our hope in life. That is our hope in death. He is the one who frees us from the body of death. And it, it, to, to, to which Paul will say, now there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right, So that we have been freed from the body of sin and from death, freed to live a life of righteousness, free to live holy lives, free to live lives that are given over to God, free to live lives that are led by the Spirit, free to live lives that demonstrate God's wonderful rule and reign in our world, that demonstrate that God is making all things new to the point that Paul says that creation itself groans kind of for the full revelation of the people of God. It's good news, right? 
And this is the good news of the gospel, right? That, that God has done this, that God has offered us life and salvation and relationship. And, and, and it's wonderful and, and absolutely holy and, and groundbreaking, earth-shattering and wonderful news for Jews and Gentiles alike. But as Paul kind of gets into this section of the book of Romans, which is notoriously tough, as Paul begins to talk about, then, then what is to come of the Jews, the, the, the people who, who God called in the beginning to, to be a, a blessing to the nations, right? Has God abandoned them? And, and Paul talks various different ways about this, and, and I'm not going to get too much into that because, it's, again, it's difficult and notoriously hard to talk about and, and not where I want to go today. So, but, but Paul talks about that, and, and Paul talks about his desire to see his own people, the people of Israel, saved. But as Paul comes into this particular chapter, as he, as he enters into, into chapter 10, he, he, he gives voice to that. I desire to see my own people saved. And, and then he begins to talk about the, the righteousness that comes from the law versus the righteousness that comes from faith. And what Paul essentially says in the verse before our text today is that, is that Christ comes and he is the end of the law. Right, right. So this thing that the people of Israel had for years and years and years and years and years and years, this thing that God said, this is the way you ought to live. This is how you live as my people. Paul gets up and he says, Christ is the end of the law. Now, that's some interesting language when we talk. It's interesting because what are we to make of that? Is really this thing that was given by God to Moses that Paul has already said is good? Does this mean it's just over with? We don't have to deal with it anymore. It's just, it's moot, it's done, it's the end, right? That, that Christ comes and all of a sudden we don't have to follow this thing anymore. We don't have to live righteously anymore, right? All this stuff. What does it mean that Christ is the end of the law? Again, this isn't the main part of the sermon, but I want to talk about it just a little bit. We tend to think of end being like the cessation language, right? Christ is the ceasing of the law, right? Christ comes, cut off, no more law, doesn't mean anything anymore. We go into Christ. Probably, and this is one interpretation, I think it's a good one, that's why I'm going to tell you about it, is it's not so much like an end, like it's cut off, we can just dispense with it, you know, those 10 things, 10 commandments, we don't need them anymore, right? Because Jesus, but it's probably more as we talk about the end of the law, the word there can mean end, cessation, completely done with. It can also mean, and this is where my mind tends to go, and I think is probably a good interpretation, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. That is that, that the law has been leading to something. The law was there, and it wasn't just a placeholder, and it wasn't just something that, that God said, okay, this is, this is moot, I don't need this anymore, that didn't work, right? But rather, the law is a way of leading to Jesus, who becomes the culmination, the fulfillment, the end, the telos, the, the point to which the law was leading all along, right? So we, we, we don't say ending, but we say that Christ is the fulfillment of it, right? Because we don't want to just throw out the law, because the law has a lot of good stuff in there. But, but I think where, where, where Paul's going is that, that it, it's, we don't follow it in the same way. And, and, and Christ shows us a new, not different, but a perhaps what God has been intending for us all along. Now, as Paul breaks this down, he, he talks about the righteousness that comes from the law, right? So, so he talks about this righteousness that comes from the law, and he describes it in such a way to say that right, Moses said, do this and you will live, right? So Paul sets up this idea that, that, that the law 
whether in, 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 fun, in meaning or in purpose, but it certainly in function had become something that people saw and said, if I do these things, then I will have right relationship with God. Right? So think of it this way, right? If I follow the right rules, God will be happy and I will have relationship with God. This is how Paul kind of describes it in this way, right? Moses said, you know, do the law and, and you'll be good. But Paul wants to say that that's not how things are supposed to work. I would venture also to say that, that Paul is, would say that that's not how God desired the things to work from the beginning. Is that me? I'm going to go with handheld. This will be a fun exercise. I'm going to take this off. All right. Can I work two-handed? That is the question. Oh, this is going to be fun. I'm going to ask for grace from you folks this morning. Um, you give me grace every morning, but this one's going to be especially. So, so Paul sets it up in this way as to, as to create a contrast, right? He says, we are not justified by following rules, right? This is not how it works, I, I, again, I would say that Paul would say this is never how it was supposed to work. I, I get the feeling that, it, that if we were to press Paul on this particular issue, Paul would never say that, yeah, what God intended from the beginning when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments was that if they followed all the commandments, then everything would be good and they would have relationship with God. I would venture to say that, that Paul, and I would say this, that, that for Paul, for God, in God's choosing of Israel, what happens is relationship comes first. And so the law of, that is of faith, right? The righteousness that comes from faith, Paul says, basically is this idea that what we do does not make us right with God. Rather, what we do and who we are flows from the prior relationship we have in God. God chose Israel first, right? So God gave a promise to Abraham said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to choose this people. And through your seed, through your progeny, through the people of your generation, through the people we will call Israelites later on, the world will be blessed. So God has chosen them already. And we've heard already that Abraham believes God in this, and it is reckoned to him as righteousness, right? The relationship already established produces a particular action in Abraham. He believes and God called Israel. God maintained relationship with Israel. God called Israel and maintained relationship with Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even into slavery, 400 years, God maintained relationship with Israel. God heard the cry of the people of Israel and brought them out of Egypt and met with them at Sinai. And it's only at that point, after the relationship is established, that God gives the law. Which is essentially to say, this is how to relate an unholy people and a holy God. This is how we get along. I have chosen you, and this is what it means to be chosen. These are the, the implications of living out a, and I will use an anachronism, but a kingdom life in the world. This is what it looks like when the reign of God is active in a people. Of course, we know that the law didn't do that for the people of Israel, and the law wouldn't do that for us either. That it became something that looked more like this. 
But again, what Paul wants to say, the righteousness that comes from faith, is this idea that God has established in Christ relationship with us. He said it already. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Which means that God makes the move towards relationship before we're even aware of it. I mean, certainly before I was aware of it, a couple thousand years before I was even born, God established relationship with me, with humanity. God reached out and said, I desire to have relationship with you. And so I am going to come. Christ comes. Christ dies at our hand, raises from the, from the dead. And God says, in this, you will have life. So God establishes relationship first, and out of that relationship comes certain ways of thinking, certain ways of being, certain ways of living and acting in the world that demonstrate we are a people of God. Now, I spent all that time on this to say this is an important point. It's an important point for us to remember. What we do is vitally important. How we act is vitally important. But those things are not the things that establish and create the relationships we have with God. God has already extended his hand to us in Christ. God has already said, I want to be in relationship with you so much I will die for you. Our life comes out of saying, we will follow. We will be the people who you want us to be. And so who we are, what we do, the actions we take flow out of the relationship, but do not establish it. Okay. I just want to be very, very clear on this. And I think, and I'm 90% sure that's what Paul is talking about here. The relationship is established, but the righteous will live in ways that demonstrate righteousness. Relationships already established. So what it means to follow God is to have faith or trust that who Jesus is and what he did is actually effective for us. This is the righteousness that comes through faith. Paul essentially boils down what it means to be a follower, a person of God, to two things. I know it's pretty surprising, but that's what he says. He says, you must believe in your heart that God rose Christ from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Two things. We often overcomplicate that, but Paul boils it down to two things. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Now, certainly there are, there are implications behind this, right? What does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead? Well, Paul has talked about before, right? That Christ is the means by which we have life and salvation. And that God's resurrection of Christ from the dead is not only a sort of stamp of God saying this is right, this is true, and this is good. But it's also a promise that if God raised Jesus from the dead, he will also give life to our mortal bodies as well. So to believe that in our hearts means to believe it's true, to trust God that these things are actually true and actually real. And to live in ways that are consistent with that. If we really believe something, we will act accordingly. If you believe in gravity, you will not jump off high things and expect to fly. Right? Right? If you believe in something, you will act accordingly. 
if I believe, uh, I'm not going to use another example. That one was fine. But, but this idea that we are acting accordingly, what does it mean to act accordingly, right? If, if our lives are hid in Christ and in God and nowhere else, to quote a psalm lyric, whom then shall we fear? What actions would we take if we really truly in our hearts believe that would true? What, what lifestyle does that produce? If we believe that, that life is in Christ and in Christ alone, it means that life is not in money or in power and influence, all those sort of things that we tend to hope will secure our lives. It causes us to live in ways that are different or consistent. It is a trust, right? If we trust in God to be our salvation in Christ, then that will produce actions that demonstrate that trust. We trust and believe in our hearts that God raised Christ from the dead, which means God is true to God's word, all of it. And we behave consistent with that. Now, to, to those of us in, in this day and age where we, we call, talk about freedom and the personal freedoms we have, it's hard for us to think in these ways of who do we trust for our life. We could think of Paul's time where, where basically Caesar was called father and, and he was the great benefactor. The Caesar in Rome was the one from whom all good things came. This was language that was used in Paul's day. And so the people, even in Rome, even more so, would have heard this idea that, wait a minute, it is not Caesar who secures your life. It is not Caesar who gives you freedom. It, it, it's not the Constitution that guarantees our freedom for, for Christians. We have certain rights as Americans that come along with that, but our freedom, who we are, does not derive from those things. It is derived from Christ and in Christ alone. To believe in your heart means we act in particular in ways that are consistent with that. And then Paul says, you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So there is something public and vocal about what Paul is talking about. Now, perhaps this is proclamation, right? Our, our job to spread the word, so to speak, this might also be more like confession, like that we confess, we say out loud to one another, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean that Jesus is Lord? Well, it means that Caesar isn't. It means that nothing else is. Again, in Paul's day and age, there, there was this, this very, very common cry, Caesar is Lord. Caesar's word is law. What Caesar says you do. And there are lots of other things that vie for our attention that we follow that, that we may not call as Lord, but that act as Lords to us, whose will we follow. But to say Jesus is Lord means it is Jesus' word and his alone that we follow. We measure all things we do and who we are by what Jesus says and everything else secondary. doesn't mean there aren't some things that are secondary that are good, but it means that Jesus' word is what we follow first foremost is to him that our allegiance lies. And so this means again, sometimes acting in ways that are inconsistent with the worlds and the empires around us because we believe Jesus is Lord to believe Jesus is Lord is also to do what Jesus says. Now Jesus said a lot of things, but let me just reduce it at least for today's discussion to one command that he gave his disciples, love one another as I has loved you. The only command that Jesus said was a command to his disciples. Now, he said, follow whatever uh, the other stuff that's in there. But the thing he commanded specifically his disciples to do is love one another in ways that are God-like, Christ-like. 
we could go to Philippians and see Paul talk about this. Right? Having you the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. Christ, who did not consider his equality with God as something to be exploited, but rather he emptied himself and made himself nothing. Taking on the form of a servant, even a slave to the cross, even to death. And God raised him to new life, right? He says, this is the way we are to live in relationship with one another. In ways that are oftentimes entirely inconsistent with the the world around us. In ways that are extraordinary. They're out of the ordinary in the world in which we live. Love that is self-giving. Love that regards others' needs as more important than our own. This is groundbreaking stuff. And this is what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. When, at least when, when I baptize someone, when you enter the, the waters of the baptism, we talk about this. Do you confess that Christ is your Lord? Which means, will you do what he says? Will you have allegiance to him and to him alone? Will you do things that he says even when it's hard? Or even when you don't understand why? Will we truly believe that Jesus and no one else is our Lord? I mean, we, we might reduce it and say, is it really that simple? But it's not simple in the fact that it's life-changing, world-altering. For, for many of us who grew up in the church, it's kind of like, yeah. But, but again, you think about this in terms of, of Paul's original audience, these people who, who have lived under Rome, who have lived as Caesar is my Lord, Caesar is my benefactor, Caesar is my Savior. He is the one who secures peace and security. And what Paul is saying is that is not true. That's an illusion. Our lives are hid in Christ. He gives peace. He gives safety. He gives security. Salvation is in his name alone. Again, it seems simple in phrase, but it really means a reorientation of our lives, switching our loyalty, if you will, our loyalty from Caesar or from whatever else to Christ and Christ alone. This is a wonderful and truly amazing gift. But some of the things that Paul says that are even more earth-shattering is this is not simply for the people of God, meaning this is not simply for Jews. Right? God called the people of Israel to be a particular uh, people, a carrier of his message, a light to the nations, all sorts of different things. But, but what happens in Christ and what Paul begins to talk about, and Paul really is the apostle to the Gentiles, is saying what God has thrown open the doors And this is not just reserved for a single people, but rather this is a a thing that is given to everybody. Everybody. That that in the kingdom of, of God, there are no insiders and outsiders. In the kingdom of God, there are no special people and not special people. In the kingdom of God, all are potential recipients of the good news and salvation that Christ has come to bring and that Paul has proclaimed everywhere he went after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He goes and he says, this message is for all, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, if we were to read on, Paul would say how much his heart breaks that some of his fellow people have not accepted this message. 
and then he hopes that all will come to know Jew and Gentile alike, but, but he wants to make sure we know that this message is for all. Now, in the particular context in which Paul gives this letter and is speaking here, he is speaking directly to his fellow Jews, right, about his fellow Jews. He's saying that, that it's not just for them, it's for others, but he desperately desires to see them come to know and desperately desires to see others teach them and preach to them and tell them about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but, but this gospel is, is interesting as Paul relates it, that, that it's not just that we are wonderful recipients of it, although we are wonderful recipients of it. We have received this grace. We have received this message. We have been offered salvation, and we ought to rejoice. We ought to proclaim, Hosanna, our God saves, because God has done this in Christ for us. We have this gift We have accepted and received this gift, and we have this promise of salvation. But there is a double-edged sword, because we had to hear somewhere. And Paul reminds us that we cannot believe in someone whom we've not heard about. How can we believe a message we have not heard? All of us in this room are here today. Whether we believe this or not, we are all here today because someone told us about this gift in Jesus Christ. Some of you may be able to picture right now, could bring, recall to mind the name of the person who first told you about this. Some of us can just go through a lit, I have this, I have a slideshow going in my mind right now of all the people who have proclaimed this gospel to me in my life. Think of the Sunday school teacher I had when I was really, really young. I can remember flannel graphs, right? Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember my parents talking to me about it. I remember doing Bible studies and Bible quizzing. I can think of the the youth pastor who told me for the first time, you have to commit or not commit, just make a choice. You can't have it both ways. I remember the teacher in a college classroom who said, God wants to make you holy. Are you willing to let him? And on and on and on, the people and the faces and the names of those who have proclaimed to me the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wouldn't know if someone hadn't proclaimed to me. I probably wouldn't be here if someone hadn't proclaimed to my mom and my dad, who brought me to church faithfully so that I could hear for myself. How can they know someone whom they have not believed in? How can they believe in someone they have never heard of? How can they hear about him if no one proclaims? And how can they proclaim if they are not sent? The other side of receiving the gift of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, as recipients of that good news, we are also now sent to bring that good news to others to proclaim it to them in word and in deed. We are sent people. We who are learners have become those who are sent. We who are followers are now those who are sent. To use the new language in the New Testament, we who are disciples have become apostles, sent ones. For we have this good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with the knowledge 
of salvation that we have, we are also called and to proclaim that to others. Now, we've talked about this in lots of different ways at lots of different times. We're not all called in the same way. Some are called to be evangelists. That is, that is their gifting. They go and they preach, and, and God does amazing and wonderful things to crowds, to Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham's and, and Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley's, right? Uh, those who have this gift, not all are called to be Billy Graham. It's okay if you don't think you're Billy Graham, right? I'm not Billy Graham. It's okay. We're not all called in the same way, but we are all called to go. Some are called to go into pulpits. That's part of my calling anyway. It's not the extent of it, but it's part of it. Some are called to foreign countries. Some are called to certain people groups. Paul himself will say he was called as the apostle to the Gentiles. But you're called in your schools and in your workplaces and in the places where you visit and drive. We are called to, in word and in deed, Proclaim the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ in every interaction. Not every interaction will involve words. We are called to be a people who, in our words and in our lives, proclaim the good news. And when we are prompted by the Spirit to proclaim it in word, we are all called to go. And so Paul ends with this quotation when he says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. What Paul is perhaps getting at is that all who have received this grace are those who are sent. Which means that there's some beautiful feet in this room today. I don't care what you think about your own feet, but I think they're beautiful because you are sent and you are people who have the good news. Whether you wear, I don't know, these shoes, I don't know what they are. They're not name brand. Whatever your favorite shoe is, your feet fill those shoes and they are beautiful because you are people who carry with you this good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a need out there. There is a need for people to proclaim this good news. To proclaim that there is hope even in death. To proclaim that death is not the last word for those who are in Christ. To proclaim that that God not only desires relationship with us, but has gone even to death to establish it with us. Who has offered us himself that we might have eternal life who has shown us in Jesus Christ that God is true to God's word, that if God can raise Christ from the dead, then he can give life to our mortal bodies as well. It is this good news that we carry with us everywhere we go and wherever we go. So that means you have beautiful feet. For you are sent as those who have the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we close today, as the worship team comes back up, let us take some time to listen. Let us take some time to consider. Think of the places where you go, places you might go naturally, or the places to which you might be feeling the Spirit's call. Asking
how and in what way you might be a proclaimer of this good news. For Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And God deeply desires us to be in relationship with God's own self. God desires us to call us in to be that we might be the people we are created to be. Relationship with God, relationship with others. And if we have such a good news, how can we not but share it in word and in deed? Would you please stand as we sing this final song?